0: you can turn your bibles to 1 Samuel as we continue our ongoing evening studies and meditations on this wonderful book in Old Testament history if you don't have a bible with you i would encourage you to use one of the chairback bibles it should be nearby you and you'll find tonight's text on page 226 and we pick up where we left off last week in verse 11 of chapter 2 so i'll take our reading from verse 12 of chapter 2 through the end Of the chapter, so do listen once again as the Lord does speak to us through His perfect word. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men, they did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. And moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept a boiled meat from you, but raw only. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, and say, "'May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord.' So then they would return to their home, and indeed the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, "'Why do you do such things?' For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear of the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also With man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense and wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices? And my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling. And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering for my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to give grief to his heart." And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you both, that both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever." And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. And thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Lord, we know that forever your word is firmly fixed in the heavens And we pray this night that you would, by your Spirit, put false ways far from us, that you would graciously teach unto us the truth as it's contained in this passage, that you would give us life according to your steadfast love, that grace that we have in Jesus Christ, the priest-king, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you might know that the year 1740 is a significant year in church history, particularly American, English speaking, at least church history, because it's in 1740 that something that was famously called the Great Awakening broke out in the land here in the colonies, and of course, if an awakening broke out, the very fact that an awakening was was needed presumes some degree of darkness and decay spiritually was marking the areas of New England and up and down the Atlantic seaboard at the time. And sure enough, a pastor who was living during those days wrote, religion lay, as it were, a dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. Everything seemed dark, everything seemed dead. Now, whatever darkness and death lay at that time in the 1740 year, whatever darkness and death marks the land in which we live in our time and place, we need to recognize that it has nothing by way of comparison to the darkness and death that belong to the time of First Samuel. Because as we talked about a few weeks ago in our first study, remember students, this was a book written during the days of the judges, some of the darkest, most decaying spiritual times in all of Israel's history. The common refrain was, of course, there was no king in Israel. Every person did what was right in his own eyes. It was a land full of depravity. It was a land full of of iniquity. And, of course, all of that trespassing and transgressing didn't surprise the Lord at all because he had created in his kindness and his mercy and grace an Old Testament sacrificial system to deal with his people's sins, that you came to the priest and you offered sacrifices. And that was how it was that... A holy God could dwell with an unholy people. The problem, however, in Israel, in its death, decay, and darkness, is so great that what we see tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 2, that very darkness has stretched all the way into the priestly family. And it's telling us something that corrupt priests have a hard time dealing with the sin of corrupt people. Actually, the pages of history would tell us that corrupt leaders in a church tend to corrupt the people. So there's these various parts of the text that are before us tonight. We have this corruption of Eli's house. We have this condemnation upon Eli's house through an unnamed prophet. And in the midst of that, there's this clear contrast with Eli's house and this young boy, this priest... Devoted to the Lord, faithful to the Lord, consecrated to the Lord, this young boy named Samuel. So it's a text that's helping us understand a few different things, a number of lessons that we want to bring out tonight. Even from the very offing, we need to recognize it's a text that helps us understand how leaders among God's people must be faithful, uh, lest corruption even come to their very own. It's, of course, a text that's going to remind us also that covenant homes dare not presume upon God's blessings And grace. And it reminds us perhaps by the end, what we're going to see is that no matter how decayed and dark the situation might seem, light and God's glory and grace is always breaking through. And that's even giving us the theme that I want to put before you tonight, which is just light in the darkness. Amidst all the darkness and death, there's light that's going to shine through. But of course, in order to understand just the glory that belongs to the Covenant promise, that light that's going to shine. We have to understand something of the darkness. So the first lesson that I want you to see from the first portion of our passage is the church may have corrupt leaders. So the church may have corrupt leaders. You'll notice how verse 12 of our text begins. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. So worthless, in fact, it's not until many verses later that they even get named They're not worthy of being named here in this text, that a language there for for worthless. In the original language, it's something like sons of Belial or Belial, which would be used in the original context of 1 Samuel for wickedness, rebellion, and death. Uh, But it's a phrase that takes on such evil undertones that later on in the Bible, it's synonymous with prince of evil. So this is the priestly family there in Israel, princes of evil. And it's not the first time that we've even seen this word worthless used. If you glance back to chapter 1, verse 16, what you'll find in that moment, you might remember from a few studies past, Hannah is there praying in the house of worship in Shiloh. She's praying for a son. She's praying fervently and faithfully, and the high priest Eli, he sees Hannah praying, And it's so uncommon for him to see fervent and faithful praying that he presumes that Hannah is drunk. And she says, no, that's not the case. Verse 16 of chapter 1, don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. Part of the problem of Eli's house is he thinks she's a worthless woman while he seems to be doing nothing about his worthless sons. And part of the reason for their worthlessness comes, look at the end of verse 12, they did not know the Lord. Uh, They were no better in the Old Testament's language and story than the pagan king in Egypt in the book of Exodus named Pharaoh. Because you might remember Moses shows up in Exodus chapter five and he says, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh that I should listen to him? I don't know the Lord. And here is the historian of this book saying, these sons did not know the Lord. Now, students, understand that they knew a lot of truth about God. Even as priests in the Old Testament, it was quite likely that they had a lot of the Old Testament memorized. You can know a lot of truth about God, but not love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can recite lots of scripture about God, but not be truly devoted to him. And the problems there with these worthless sons really are threefold, as the text Continues to unfold, the first of which is their liturgical sins. Because if you just glance through verse 13 and 14 again, you'll see what they're doing is they're taking meat from the sacrifices for themselves. And it's true in Old Testament law that priests were allowed a portion of the sacrifices for their own eating. But there was a particular way they were to go about that. And in their pride, in their scorn of God's command, uh, these sons of Eli were grabbing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. As verse 13 and 14 depicts children, you can think about this meat being cooked. It's offered as sacrifices to the Lord. It uses this language the text does. No matter what the, the device is there in the priestly kitchen, the pot, the cauldron, or the kettle, they would take this large fork and just slam it into the pot. And then whatever meat came out, they would take for themselves. And in so doing, they were robbing from the people of Israel, making that sacrifice. The greater part of their liturgical sin was actually what they were doing according to verse 15. Not just robbing the people, but robbing God. Because you'll notice again verse 15. Before the fat was burned, the text says, they would take whatever meat they wanted. That may not mean a whole lot to you. Before the fat was burned, taking the meat... But the Old Testament law makes it clear that the fat was the Lord's portion. You burn that in praise and offering to the Lord. And to not do that, to take it for yourself, was a capital crime in Israel. You see that these brothers are so far gone in their sin. These priests are so far gone in their lack of accountability that they're doing just whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. Liturgical sins get a summary notice, verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. For the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. The church may have corrupt leaders. Sometimes that corruption is seen most acutely in how they lead God's people in worship. uh, Treating the offering of the Lord with contempt in their very hearts. But it wasn't just liturgical sins that marked these leaders. There's also moral sins. Look at verse 22 at the end. They lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. They had turned the tabernacle into a brothel. Liturgical sins, moral sins. There was also familial sins. Because what you'll notice, Eli does in verse 23 through 25, he comes alongside his sons and he tries to warn them, however feeble and Frail his warnings are. He says, we hear all these reports about what you're doing. You shouldn't be doing these things, guys. But you'll notice the end of verse 25. They would not listen to the voice of their father. And I, I'm sure that many of you parents know the place and even sometimes obedience that belongs to warning your children. and Godly warnings about their behavior unless they continue on a path towards death and destruction. Uh, But children, you also want to remember here that the Bible says there are times in which your parents in love and devotion will warn you. and It may even sound somewhat frail and feeble like Eli. But godliness and obedience, it means hearing and, and heeding the warnings of your parents. So the church may have corrupt leaders. And it just so happened in God's providence, I was preparing this very point just a couple of days ago. And I got notification from a friend that there was this leader in our denomination, very much cherished and well-known, who had served for many years at a very much cherished and well-known congregation. And this leader had just recently disqualified himself due to shocking and scandalous sin. And I texted a few friends and remarked something about the fact that I was so surprised by what had happened. And someone else in the text thread responded, I'm not shocked anymore by these things happening. And I don't know which side of that equation you fall into. Uh, Maybe you have a idealistic view of leadership in the church. Uh, You are genuinely shocked in a way. You ought not to be shocked when leaders fall and fail. I think, however, it's much better for us to be concerned if we've fallen into a place of cynicism and skepticism, thinking that, yeah, all leaders are bad. It doesn't shock us anymore that leaders are doing something that ought to disqualify themselves once it's made public. Because surely the Lord means for his people to be led by faithful leaders. and So it's a reason why you ought to praise the Lord and his provision of the Spirit when he has given you leaders who are faithful and obedient, who are marked by consecration in the Lord's service, not corruption within their own sin. But that's lesson number one. The church may have corrupt leaders. Lesson number two is that the Lord will cut off those who reject his blessings. Because you'll see how verse 25 continues there in chapter 2. They would not listen to the voice of their father. The text says, "...for it was the Lord's will to put them to death." It's another one of these eloquent verses that we get in the Bible, isn't it? That balances in ways that don't always work out in our minds. Human responsibility with divine sovereignty. They would not listen to their father's voice. It was the Lord's will to put them to death." And so as the next scene opens in verse 27, this unnamed prophet arrives. And what you'll see he does in verse 27 and 28, he reminds Eli of the blessings in God's grace that Eli's household had received. They'd received God's revelation. They had received God's election unto the priestly service. But they had despised those blessings. You notice the question of verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices? and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel. It's quite striking when you kind of compare this scene with what we saw last week in Hannah's psalm, these words that she sang forth at the beginning of chapter 2. Because if you glance back to verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 2, you'll see that she says, and she sings, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And it wouldn't be surprising if you would initially have heard that song from Hannah, thinking that she's singing that over enemies of God's people. But in fact, the most immediate reference for that in her own life as it's played out here in 1 Samuel, is against priests in God's kingdom. Talking proudly, living as if the Lord doesn't see everything and weigh everything on his scales of justice. The Lord thus comes to this unnamed prophet and says to Eli, don't you know these blessings that I have given to you? Do you not realize that you have despised them? Therefore, be not surprised that I'm going to cut you off. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I'll cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. He goes on to say, not only is your house going to be cut short, the lives of your sons are going to be cut short. They're actually both going to die on the very same day. It's going to get so bad in your house, Eli, that notice verse 36, everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him, that being God's anointed Implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. And again, there's this kind of immediate application to Hannah's psalm that came in that prior scene, because she was singing forth about God's sovereign reversals that often fall in life. Sovereign reversals that, that raise up those who are brought low, sovereign reversals that give food to those who are hungry. But isn't it true that sovereign reversals often go by way of judgment, that this priestly family who has fattened themselves on the Lord's offering, he says, you're going to be begging for bread in a very short and sure amount of time. I'm going to cut you off because you have rejected my blessings. And don't you think that's a sober warning for people like us, households like ours, Children, understand that you're being raised in families that strive to be faithful to the Lord, in a church that aims to be obedient to the Lord. Therefore, you are being raised in places, children, that are familiar with God's blessings, familiar with His graces, and the Lord who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If He cuts off this family because they reject His blessings, understand He still will cut off people who reject the blessings that they have scorned with contempt. So lesson number one is the church may have corrupt leaders. Lesson number two is that the Lord will cut off those who reject his blessings. But remember, it's light in the darkness. I amidst mean, all this decay and death spiritually in Israel. There's light in the darkness because the third thing you want to see is that the Lord will call forth his priest. Because sandwiched largely between these Remarks of corruption and condemnation. We do see this consecration of Samuel. Look back at verse 18. We're simply told that Samuel's ministering before the Lord. He was a boy clothed with a linen ephod. The text goes on to tell us it reminds us the godliness of his parents, Elkanah and Hannah. They would come up every year to offer sacrifices at Shiloh. And Hannah, as a a loving young mother of her beloved son Samuel, she would bring him every year a new robe that he could wear for the next 12 months as he grows in the Lord's service. And every time that they would show up, evidently, Eli, the priest, would extend them a blessing, saying, May the Lord give you more children. And so if you glance down to verse 21, that blessing comes true, as Hannah and Elkanah have three sons and two daughters. And the text says there in verse 21, The boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. It's a common refrain that even shows up. Skip down to verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Now, your family may be somewhat like ours during these weeks leading up to Christmas and the Advent season where perhaps during family worship or time during the week when you're reading the Bible, you're reading through these stories in the Gospels about the Lord Jesus and His coming. And so as early this week, our family was reading through Luke chapter 2. And those of you who have read through Luke chapter 2 before have perhaps noticed that there is a noticeable refrain about young Jesus. For example, Luke chapter 2, verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So when Luke is telling the story of, of Jesus, the anointed one of God, what is he pulling on but language directly taken from 1 Samuel chapter 2 about a light in the darkness, about a priest the darkness? Surrounded by corruption and condemnation. Because of course, that's exactly what this unnamed prophet speaks about. Look at verse 35 of First Samuel chapter 2. The Lord says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind and I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. I do think the immediate... Original reference there is to Samuel, but it's the ultimate fulfillment in the priest-king Jesus Christ, is it not? Because if you glance up to Eli's warning to his sons, he speaks about the danger that belongs to those who fall into sin's corruption. Because you see what he says, this question verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord... Who can intercede for him? So what's the good news for people like you and me, corrupt in sin, deserving to be cut off? Is it not the gospel of a coming priest-king who is the only mediator between God and men, whose sacrifices are pure and perfect, always able to reconcile and restore and bring Forgiveness, such that the author to the Hebrews exalts in chapter 7, verse 26 of that wonderful book. Indeed, it's fitting that we should have a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Lord calls forth his priest, surrounded by corruption and the condemnation that such sin deserves. The Lord has a light in the darkness. He has a priest for his people, one who will go in and out forever on their behalf that they might know his joy. Of course, we remember that that's ultimately light in the darkness that comes through the light of the world, our priest king, Jesus Christ himself. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that our Savior is our light in the darkness, that you have given us a high priest who makes atonement on our behalf a high priest who is perfect who obeyed you in every way that he might present himself as the offering on our behalf and reconcile us to you so i do help us to walk in his love and holiness we pray in his mighty name amen